The story of the golden calf. Okay, so the issue that we're dealing with in the middle of <coughs> Moshe wants to broker act as a broker to bring the two sides together. The two sides being on one hand the people that are mourning the fact that God will not accompany them as the Torah states in uh, chapter 33 Sukim 2, 1, 2 and 3 especially Pasuk number 3 I'm not going to go with you which means we interpreted I will not go in your midst in your presence that is referring to the Mishnah I would point out that the term I will not go in your midst the first time we what page? 186. That, that expression, which is a very critical expression, we actually encountered that expression earlier in chapter 17 in the story of Amalek. In fact, that's the leading the lead verse of the Amalek story. So when the people are wondering, with all their questioning and complaining, they're wondering, is God in that presence or not? And the next verse, there, the Torah seems to suggest God, in fact, is in our presence, but the people don't seem to want to understand that. They don't comprehend it. It's a matter of how could they not comprehend it? They've been redeemed by God throughout, but so it's a critique, probably. Their God is in their presence, but they don't understand that God's in their presence. In the story over here, they want God to be in their presence. They realize that God is threatening not to be in their presence. They understand that the goal is to have God in their presence, but God doesn't want to be in their presence. Because Penachelko Baderech, lest I destroy you on the derech. It's also interesting that Amalek, the danger of Amalek, was always also Baderech. That's the term the Torah uses for Amalek. So Moshe steps in over here to bring the two sides together. As we study, God says to Moshe, listen, what can I do? I understand the problem. And the people have taken off their jewelry and they're essentially in the morning, the absence of God. But God says there's nothing I can do about it. So Moshe steps in and he attempts to bring the two sides together. The first step is found in the beginning of the seventh verse. Moshe took his own tent <coughs> And he placed it outside the camp, <coughs> far away from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting, Olamoid. Olamoid is a synonymous term in the Torah for the Mishnah. So the first step is to create an Olamoid, create a Mishkan. But this Mishkan is not inside camp, it's not Bekerev, it's not inside, quite the opposite, it's far away. The model of a holy site, temple, that is far away as opposed to being inside that's the model that appears later in the book of Tzvarim and beyond which you call the Beit HaMikdash Beit HaMikdash the Torah says in Tzvarim Pashat Re'ei Ki Yichak Mimcha Makom the place is far away so effectively what Moshe is doing over here prior to the Mishkan being built can't be built because God won't be Bikir is to say okay we, if we can't have a Mishkan Let's at least have a, a mikdash. Let's have a temple. The temple is far away. 
That's what Moshe does. And the Torah added, those who seek God would go out to the temple. So that's a very important point about those who seek God would go to the temple because that is what the Mikdash is about. That's what the Torah, in conjunction with the Mikdash, is where the Torah emphasizes the idea of a pilgrimage, the journey. So here we have the example of a journey to the place that's far away. The truth of the matter is that this idea of a pilgrimage to a distant holy place, which is central to the book of Tzvarim, and is the idea of the Mikdash, the idea of Hashem to seek out God, that is all very central to the book of Tzvarim, but I would argue that it's not actually novel in a certain sense. I mean, you have it over here, but but um, you have it actually in an earlier story of the Torah, the idea of a special sacred place, which is far away, and the idea that there's a journey that you take to get there. And that's the story of uh, the binding of Isaac, Akedat Yitzchak. There you have exactly that point. God says to Avram Lechucha to get up and travel. So the traveling itself is important. But not only is the idea of travel important, you have the second element over there of when Abraham looked up on the third day, the says, He saw the place from far away. So there we have in that story, not just the travel, the journey, the place that I have told, that I will tell you, but it's also far away. Because the Torah says he looks up and he sees the place from far away. Number three, the third interesting feature of the Abraham story, the narrative, is that when Abraham finally bring, comes to the place, which he brings a sacrifice, that's also interesting, it's a place of sacrifice, we call Haram Moriah, but he actually gives the place a name. The name he gives the place is Hashem Yireh, the place that God sees or chooses. Hashem Yireh Hayom Bahar Hashem Yireh, which today is known as the place in which God is seen. So there we have, it's interesting, there we have exactly that theme of seeing and being seen, which appears in the book of Zavarim in conjunction with this journey to the temple. They shall appear, right? And we have it elsewhere in the Chumash to see God's face. The oath that for the Hashem, or to be seen by God's face. Then we have a verse in, in, even in Sefer Shemot, and we have the whole section in the book of Devarim about the journey to the holy place that God chooses, which is far away, and the idea is to see and to be seen. All of that is present in the Akedah. That's what it's about. My point being that we should not think of the story in Sefer Devarim, the emergence of the chosen place, as something completely new. Narratively, of course, it figures already in the book of Breshit, in this binding of Isaac. So here we have Moshe, he builds a temple far away from the people, but he also allows them to get there. Komivake, you have to seek it out. All those who seek God can go to the temple, which is outside, right? It's outside the camp. It's outside the camp. That was the first point. The second point we made last week is that apart from giving, so he's doing two things. He's bringing God closer, not inside, but he's bringing God closer, accessible. Secondly, he's allowing the people to, to, to take the journey. Number three, and this is what we ended with last week, I believe, well, not ended with, but a very important point, 
that what the Chumash emphasizes is that the tent which is outside the camp and Moshe journeys, Moshe goes to the tent outside the camp that when Moshe would go to the tent outside the camp to meet God, it would come down in the cloud that some people would go but the majority of the people would follow Moshe as he goes and watch him as he goes into the tent and they would stand by their own tents and then not only would they stand by their own tents in kind of respect right, or maybe mimicking what he's doing but when the cloud would come down they would bow down it says by the door of their own tents so what the Chumash is emphasizing Petach Aholo which appears in verse number 8 Petach Aholo appears in verse number 9 Petach Aholo appears in verse number 10 twice actually Um, so you have this connection being made between the people's tents inside the camp and the tent outside the camp so what the which really reflects sort of is reflective of the idea that is found in the 11th Pasuk that Moshe would leave the tent in which God is present and go back to the camp he left Yoshua his disciple there to, to be in his place so someone God shouldn't come to an empty house but essentially Moshe is going back and forth that's the first step the second part of the story beginning in verse number 12 on page 187 is where Moshe says to God that the next the the idea is to get God to travel with the people the way Moshe does that is in two stages first of all Moshe turns to God in verse 12 and says he starts look here look here you told me to bring the people up but you never told me whom you're going to send with me that's how he begins by that he means as far as the people are concerned the beginning of chapter 33 God said to Moshe I will send an angel a messenger before you I can't go with you the messenger is instead of me the messenger will drive out the inhabitants of the land and bring you to a land of milk and honey but the messenger, that's not me. So Moshe says, that's the people who are all mourning, because God's not going to go with them. There's no Mishkan. So Moshe turns to God and says, okay, there's no Mishkan for them. But obviously for me it's different, because you, you appear in my tent. My tent is the, my tent's a Mishkan. So let me ask you a question. Moving forward, who's going to go with me? That's Moshe's question. That question of Moshe is coupled with something else, in verse number 12 and 13 and this is actually very important together with the question you haven't told me who's going to go with me Moshe said and not only that you've singled me out and you said to me that you like me very much I find favor in your eyes and now in verse 13 he says if that's true Teach me, hodieni, inform me, give me knowledge of Juachecha of your ways. In order that I know you better, and know you and I find even more favor in your eyes. And see here, The question is, this little speech begins with the word Re and it ends with the word Re. Re is found at the beginning of verse twelve. 
And Ray is found at the end of verse 13. But the question is, Moshe's request to God seemed to be two, two things. First of all, who's going with me? Are you coming or is sending an angel? Who is it? But then he says, in addition, teach me your teach me your way, your paths to your ways. So the question is, what's the connection between those two requests? And God's answer, in the verse 14, God said to Moshe, I, my face, literally will go with you, and I will guide you. Is that an answer to one of Moshe's questions? Or is that an answer to both of Moshe's questions? I mentioned on Sunday, actually, that this whole section over here is dealt with at length by the Rambam in his guide. This is a section that is part of the Chumash that for the Rambam was very central. For the simple reason, the guide is about... It's awfully hot in here, isn't it? Yes. I'm very hot. The guide is... The main concern of the guide is knowledge of God. That's the main concern. What can we know about God and what can't we know about God? That's the Rambam's, I would say, obsession, actually. So the Rambam, and when you read the Torah, the Torah seems to say many things about God. God gets angry, God is happy, God is sad, God talks, God thinks, God walks, all the expressions that bothered the Rambam, who had this central belief that God is this pure form, that nothing, that God is wholly other. You can't even say anything about God. You can only say negative things, but God is not. You can't say what God is. God has no body. The Rambam takes, takes the position, by the way, that if someone believes that God has a body, that person is a, uh, is a heretic. In fact, for the Rambam, the idea of God not having a body is one of the absolutely cardinal Jewish beliefs. The Yigdal we sing, which is based on the Rambam's principles of faith, God has the appearance of a body, so he has no body. The Rambam writes that that's a central idea in the Rambam. The Ravid of Ramban David, who wrote the Attacks on the Rambam, Asogad Arayvid, is an amazing person in his own right. He said very famously, he says on that Rambam, he has all these critiques of the Rambam throughout the, all the Mishnah Torah. He writes, greater people than you thought so, he says. Greater people than you thought so. Gedolim betovim imenu. Greater people than the Rambam believe that God has a body. The Rambam didn't believe God has a body. But he was saying is, I don't believe it. But if you do believe it, he says, because you read the Medrash, it talks a little times about God's body, God's size, God's this, God's that, the many Midrashim. People made a mistake, he says. It's an honest error, okay. They're not heretics. It's not heresy. Okay, it's a mistake. That's the writer's position. The Rambam, so the Rambam, this, this, this particular business, Moses says to God, you know, he's going to say here, teach me your ways, but for the Rambam, let me teach me your ways. You, you can't know anything about God. God is wholly other. That's the, whole, the entire guide is dedicated to that proposition. The whole guide, first, the guide has three books. The first book, it's unbelievable. It goes through different words in the Bible. He tries to demonstrate that the same word has two different meanings. That the word 
when you speak of a person, it means one thing. But the word of speaking about God means something totally different. It goes one chapter after the next in the first book of the... Because that's what it's about, actually. So the Rambam writes about this particular section. This is very central, one of the most central... For the Rambam, this is one of the, maybe the most important conversation that we have in the Chumash in terms of his issue. Because here, Moshe wants to understand God. I want knowledge of God. What does that mean? So the Rambam very famously, the very famous Rambam, makes the following distinction. Then I'll get to his Parshanut, which is also interesting. The Rambam has the following distinction, very famous. I'm sure many of you heard of this. When it comes to God, the Rambam says, you can't actually say anything about God at all. You can always say what God is not. You can't say what God is. But, there seems to be an exception to that, to that, to that rule. The exception that we can say nothing about God is an exception that emerges from this chapter, chapter 33 and chapter 34, which is a rather significant exception. And that is when God appears to Moshe in the next chapter, chapter 34, and even God begins in chapter 33, as we'll see shortly, Moshe is taught in, these, in this story, very important, he's taught the attributes of God. The attributes of God in the Chumash, Hashem Hashem Kelrachum V'chalun Erech HaPayim V'Avchesed V'Emet. Right? That sounds like saying many things about God. God is Rachum, God is Chalun, Erech HaPayim, Rav Chesed, Notzeh Chesed L'Arofim, etc., etc. So what do you do with that? Rambam, what do you, Rambam said himself, what, how do we understand this? What, what is it? So the Rambam, of course, who was, you know, very radical in his thinking, says an amazing thing. Rambam says that we have to understand what these attributes are. The Rambam explains them in the following way, in the guide. He says, it doesn't mean that God is actually merciful. You can't say God is merciful. You can't say God is kind, benevolent, or merciful. That's out. But what you can say is something different, which is, when I see the world in which we live, I'm not, I'm not saying right or wrong, that's what the Rambam says. You see the world in which we live, you see many behaviors, and that behavior, we would say, is a demonstration of kindness. For example, you see the animal kingdom, or even the human kingdom. You see little babies. And the mother, usually the mother, is taking care of the baby, and protecting the baby, and even risking her life to protect the baby. We would say that demonstrates commitment, kindness, and that's the world that God created. That's what it means to say, the Ramam says, that God is kind. God is kind, in other words, what he's saying is, what can you know about God? The answer is nothing, but, except for one thing, you can't know anything about God. But you can know something about God, what God created. Since God created the world, you look at God's world, and from God's world, the Ramam says, you can then say that the world of God that I see, says the Rambam, is reflective of certain attributes, and that's what it means to attribute them to God. So, basically, for the Rambam, he was basically a scientist. In other words, Rambam says, if you want to, the way you can come to an understanding of God is through the study of God's world. Today we would call this science. And that's, from this world, you can learn things about God. Now, the truth of the matter is, the Rambam is probably assuming 
as many people did then and maybe some do today, that the world fundamentally, people looked at the world and they people saw in the world it's one of the arguments for the existence of God. It's attributed to Abraham even. They see a world, they see it's a very ordered world. Things are working, the sun rises in the morning, it sets at night, there's a sun, there's a moon, there's order in the world, there's a, right? So that was the argument that it must be someone who created all this. It couldn't it just happen. That's hard to believe. The, um, secondly, it was assumed, I think, in many circles, that you look at the world, that fundamentally, the world is a very benevolent place. You read, for example, Psalm 104, Baruch Nafshi describes creation. describes the various animals that God feeds and takes care of and all that. You have a, not just a world of order, but basically, for the most part, a, very, a world which is a very relatively kind place. Now, the truth of the matter is that that perception of the world has changed, I think, over, certainly over the last couple, few hundred years. And that what's being put forward is a very different conception of the world, which is a world of struggle, a world of violence. Not just the human world, but the animal kingdom. The human world is much different. And that would, those that argue God's goodness from the world, if, it depends on how you see the world, but you know, if you see the world as a place of violence and the survival of the fittest, that would not really attest necessarily to the God being a Rachel Vachanon. It's a question we could get, but the Raman probably didn't necessarily see things that way. He saw a world of order and all that. But the main point I want to make, this is all very interesting, but in terms of the Chumash, the Rambam understood the following way. So I want to get to what the Rambam understood. The Rambam says this actually in the guide. Remember the chapter, you could easily find it. It's very famous. The Rambam says that Moshe he actually tries to explain the Psukim. Moshe asked God two, two different things. He said, first of all, who's going to go with me? Who's, who's going with, in, what, in what guise, in what form? Is God going to come with me through an angel or some other way? That was the first request of Moshe. And then he had a second question. Teach me your, teach me your, teach me your ways. God's answer, the Rambam says, is God then said, I will go with you and I will guide you. Which the Rambam takes to be the answer to the first question. God didn't answer the second question yet. God didn't answer the second question. The Rambam says. Then Moshe continues. God, Moshe says in verse number, we'll come back to these verses. Moshe says in verse, in verse uh, 15, we'll get back to the difficult verses. Moshe said back to God, You're not going to come with us. Don't bother bringing us up. That is to say, I'm glad you're coming with us. And that's necessary. Because if you don't come with us, it's not, well, I'll explain better, I think, but otherwise it don't come. And furthermore, he says, in 16, how in fact will, will it be, surely be known, how can it be known, that I and your people have found favor in your eyes, is it not only if you go with us? And if you do go with us, then I and your people will be distinguished separated from, distinguished, Mikola Amashal Pnei Adamasha. Moshe basically will get back to it, 
Moshe seems to say, it's very strange, thank you very much, I'm glad you gave me the answer, you're coming, because if you're not coming, what's the point? Now, of course, that's very strange, what do you mean, thank you very much, you're coming? Well, what? So Moshe obviously is saying something else, which I'll come back to. But anyway, the way the Rambam understood this, God's answer was only to the first question. That's his Rambam said. Then, God said to Moshe in verse 17, very strange. The thing that you're asking, I will do. Because you found favor in my eyes, I've singled you up. We don't know what that means either. The thing that you said, I will also do. What did he say also? So we have to look at it more carefully. When you look at it, it's obvious, but it's not obvious when you first read it. Moses seems to say, thank you very much. It's very important that you do that. And God says, I'll do also what you want. I mean also. That, that is what you asked for. Who's going to go with me? I'm going to go with you. So what is Moshe adding? Moshe does add something very important. I'll mention it now. But Moshe added, and this is critical, Moshe added, and that's his whole strategy. Moshe said to God, very, very good. He says, who's going to come with me? That's how he says. Who's coming with me? I'm going to go with you. Oh, very good, says Moshe. Emein ponecha hochim al taleinu mizeh. If you're not coming with us, al ta'aleinu. What does ta'aleinu mean? Do not bring us up from there. So it changes it to us. Us. It changes it to us. And, that, and he adds, and after all he says, how else will I know, right, that you're coming with that I have found favor in your eyes if you don't come with us? And we, me and your people, will be distinguished from all the other. In other words, what Moshe is saying is, this is a strategy. You love me, right? I love you, Moshe. I speak to you like I speak to my friend. That's what I said earlier. One speaks face to face like one speaks to a friend. Oh, you love me, I do. But the thing is, you want to go with me, of course. Well, you can go with me, that's great. But you have to remember one thing, I also go with them. Remember, you return back to the camp. That's the whole point. So Moshe says, if you go with me, you've got to take them along. God says to Moshe, I'll do that also. I will do also what you say, because I like you so much. Interesting, God did not say, you know, they're not so bad after all. God did not say that. He's God, doing him a right. He's doing it's very similar to what I pointed out, that the one who, who built the story around this part of the story is the author of Megillah Esther. It's exactly the story of Megillah Esther. It's what Esther says to the king. Esther has two requests for the king. The first request is found in chapter 7. What do you want, Esther, with all the party invitations? What do you want? What do I want? I want my life and the life of the people. There's someone out to kill me. She introduces that by the, by the expression, which of course is the byword of it. If I find grace in your eyes, please, what do I want? I want my life and the life of my people. We've been handed over to be destroyed. If we just were slaves, they would have shut up. If someone wants to kill us, well, really? Who's the person? Wicked Haman. Okay, fine. Haman gets killed. Fine, that's chapter 7. Now in chapter 8, and Esther continued to fall down before the king. And she was crying. And the king extends his scepter. What do you want, Esther? What do you want? If I find favor in your eyes, if I'm good, if I find favor. Right, I'll tell you what I want. I want, I want you to take back that decree of yours, that all the people, that the Jews be killed on the 13th of Adar. I want you, Hashiva Tasfarim, to rescind the decree. The decree's still out there. The king killed Haman, but the decree is still out there. Nothing changed. The Jews are still going to be killed. So Esther says to the king, please, if I find favor, please, 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 
rescind the decree. For she says, because how could I survive, she says, and see the death of my people? How could I survive and see the death of my, of my morality, my kindred? The king says to Esther, listen, he says, I've done so much already. I killed Haman, and I uh, gave, gave the house of Haman over to Mordechai. But you know what? Here, here's my seal. You write whatever you want. The point is the following point. When Esther begs the king for the pe- the king has no intention of sparing the Jews. That's obvious. Yeah. Jews are all going to die. He's, Esther's another story. So Esther turns to the king in chapter 8. She has to beg him. And what does she say? If you love me, she says. That's what she says. If I, exactly, it's based on motion. If you love me, and I find favor, I'm, I'm sure you want to keep me happy, she says. But you know what? I won't be very happy if all my people got killed. Don't you want a happy queen? Oh, he says, you know, I can't take back the decree. So I can't, can't do that, you know. But yeah, take the ring, do whatever you want. He couldn't care less, obviously. But it's exactly, it's modeled, and the, the language is exactly the language of Moshe, which is the key word, Motsati Chain. That's the word that appears. So that's exactly the Afashvero. She doesn't care about the people, but he does, like, he does like Esther. So it's based on the story of Moshe. Moshe's argument for the people is, you have to understand something, he says to God. The negotiation, it's very audacious in the Chumash. It's presented in very human terms. You like me, I love you, Moshe. But I'm with them. That's the point. Yes, what do you want to say? No, that's Yes, yes. Uh, first of all, it does sound like a lot of chutzpah. I mean, you know. Tell the story. It gets worse in a minute, you'll see. It's more chutzpah, yeah. My question was that it's the Esther's interpretation of the Torah that was written down. If she did a decree, it would be in Ashmeris' name. Of course. It naturally made hers because she couldn't. No, she'll have the. Only the king can do anything. That's, That's a very important point for the Megillah, which is why one reading of the Megillah, of course, is that the real villain in the story is Achashverosh, in the sense that only he, Haman can't do anything. He has no power to kill. He can't kill anybody. Only the king can kill. Now the point is, the question in the Megillah is how you read it. Is he just an idiot? He doesn't know. That is what, that's a viable reading. He's a fool. That's one way to read it. The other way to read it is he understands everything. He's not a fool at all. But he, he, would, he, he doesn't want, never take responsibility for anything. And therefore, he doesn't know. He doesn't know. He doesn't know. That's the way he behaves. And that's the way every politician I ever met behaves exactly the same way. He doesn't know. He doesn't know what happened. So someone else did it. It's always somebody else. You say that's the way it works. So that's a way to read the Megillah from beginning to end. But my point is that he minimally... The truth of the matter is that the, in, the, in, the, in the Midrashim about Esther, the Talmud actually, it's very interesting, that the longest, by far in a way, in the Talmud Bavli, the longest extended treatment of any text, it's the only thing we have like this, is in Tractate Megillah, is a ex- very, very, very extended treatment of the book of Esther, line by line, actually. And that's the Appears no other place. That is what? That's the longest in the Talmud? It's the longest, by far away, the longest extended rabbinic discussion of a biblical text, by far, is found in Tractate Megillah, and it's the Talmudic, uh, Midrashic interpretation of Esther, which is fascinating in its own right. I would say that in that interpretation, which of course is all about Achashverosh, Haman, Esther, Mordechai, a lot about Achashverosh, 
the preponderant view, they have two views. One says he's a fool, one says he's wicked. The preponderant view is that he's wicked. That's for sure. By the way, he, could, he may also be a fool. That's, the two things are not mutually exclusive. You can be a fool. You know, sometimes you don't know if someone's just a dope or bad people. They don't know. But Achashverosh, at the end of the day, is a very bad person. Now the point is, maybe he doesn't really realize it. He say he doesn't understand. The, the assumption is that the better reading of the Megillah is he understands very well. And that he simply divests himself of responsibility. But my point is that the Megillah actually chooses the story over here. And that's what Moshe is saying. God is not so crazy about the Jewish people here. You have to remember that initially God said, let me destroy them, I'll, make, I'll, make, I'll build a nation out of you. Okay, Moshe talks them out of it, that's true. But the fact of the matter is, that over here, you know, I don't, let them go, let them, have, let them have a good life, sail to the sunset, you know, have a nice life, I'll send my angel. And Mo, the people want God back. But God doesn't, can't figure out how to do it. Then Moshe steps in and says, you know, you're going to come with me, you're going to come with them. That is, anyway, let's get back to the Rambam now. The Rambam, so that's it. So now... I think the Rambam's interpretation, by the way, is it's very ingenious, but I don't think it actually fits so well into the words. I must confess, even though it's quite ingenious. But for the Rambam is a second is now another request. Show me Hareini. It's also notice that the word to show is very central. Show me Kavod means your majesty or your glory or your presence, which the Rambam took to mean. Show me Kvodecha means, show means that I should perceive your very nature, your very essence. That Moshe was interested in understanding the nature of God, which is very tied in to what Moshe asked earlier in the story of the burning bush. If you remember the story of the burning bush, one of the things Moshe said to God is, the people are going to say, who is, who is the God that sent you? They're going to say, what is his name? What shall I say? So there, the Rambam also deals with that, obviously. But there, what is your name? There, actually, I think Pshat is, who actually are you? A name in the Torah is not, we have names, which are accidental, or I'm named for somebody. But it doesn't necessarily say anything about me. That's not true in the Chumash. In the Chumash, in Sefer Breshit, the name is who you are. The names have great significance. So when Moshe says to God, what is your name? Who are you? What is your essential character? It's like when Jacob asked the angel, he wrestles with, what is your name? And the angel says, don't ask me my name. You, you can't know my name. Don't ask my name. Name is my... So the Ramam understands this similarly. He says, Moshe said to God, I have another request, by the way. You're coming with me. Who are you? I want to understand you in, in, in totally. And according to the Rambam, God had two answers to Moshe. One answer is, in, as far as that, this God says like this. As far as the question, "Who am I?" My essential character that you can't fully grasp. You can see my back and not my face. That means you can't fully understand the nature of God. It's not so different from what God said to Moshe back at the burning bush. And Moshe said to God, "What is your name?" And God said to Moshe two things: "Ayasher ayah." So He gave him some kind of an answer, which the Rambam also interprets very interestingly. God, according to the Rambam, God, for the Rambam, is actually a positive statement about God. It's very modern what he said. means that myself and my attributes are the same. 
That's the Rambam. I believe that's what the Rambam says. That is to say, you can't actually attribute anything to God which is not God. Let me just digress for one second. It's not Chumash, but I want to tell you anyway. It's interesting. It's a history of Western philosophy. The, the people were interested for many years. There's a whole discussion amongst the Christian thinkers. And Can you actually prove God's existence or not? Can you demonstrate that God exists? So, there's a very famous proof. One, many, long, many years ago, I was very interested in this. By Anselm, they call the, 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 the ontological proof. It doesn't matter right now. I, I don't remember it myself. But I remember one thing about it. That one of the interesting questions that comes up is this. Now let's get back to the Rambam for one second. It's relevant. This is, this is the source for the Rambam. This is where the Rambam talks about this on these passages. The Rambam said you can't say anything about God. You can't say God is good. That, that's not right to say God. Now why not? Why can't you say God is What's wrong with saying God is good? For the Rambam, it's coming out of Aristotle, basically. But Aristotle had this idea that if you, when you predicate something of something else, let's say I say a table. This table has two legs or something. The table has two legs. The table is beige. So the, when you say the table is beige, as Aristotle presented it, what you're saying is two things. There's a table. There's a table. Then there's something called beigeness, right? And you are saying there's a table, and uh, and we can say of the table it has certain qualities, it has certain attributes. The Rambam thought that to say that of God is contradicting something very central, which is we say Shvai Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, that God is one. For the Rambam, one for the Rambam, following Aristotle's thinking means. God is a singular thing. You can't ever say, you can't say God is X plus this. If you say God is this plus something else, then, then that would contradict. So say that God is good, means this God, something called God. There's an attribute you attribute to God called goodness. But that's not, but that, you can't say that because then God is, God is multiple. God is not just one thing. God is a God who has the attribute of goodness. So that is something in Western thought that's very central. And where it comes up in Western thought, not in the Chumash. In Western thought, is assuming we that we. It sounds like they sound like just word games here, but believe me, it is word games. But it's very basic. I mean, it's something in Western thought that's very deep, and where it comes up. If you had to study philosophy, the following question was was raised: What about God exists? Is that is that a statement you can make? God exists. Well, you say you can't say God exists either, because there's God and there's existence comes up in Western philosophy, the name of a philosophy course in maybe college or graduate school, is existence a, uh, a, uh, a, 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 a predicate? Is existence right? Is existence a predicate or not? So the Rambam actually took a position on this, I think, that existence is a predicate. You can't even say God exists. Eyesher Eyesher for the Rambam was actually God saying to Moses, you can say nothing of me. You wonder who I am? I'm the being of whom you can say nothing except the very thing itself. You can't predicate something else of this. And the Rambam, it's very central with the Rambam's thinking. In any event, as opposed to the way I would read the Chumash, Eyasher, or Rashi reads it, Eyasher, Eyasher means whatever I am, I am. You ask me a lot of questions, Moses. What is my nature? What is my name? You want to understand me? Let me tell you something. So for Rashi, the answer is, 
I'm the God who will be with them when they're in trouble. That's one way to read it. But the, the other way to read it is, whatever I am, don't ask me so many questions about who I am. Whatever I am, I am. But if you want an answer who I really am, I'll give you a second answer. Go back to the people and tell them the God of their ancestors, the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's my name. My name is not, don't ask me about my being. That's, what, that's, that's a simple reading of the Chumash. Don't ask me about my nature. You can't understand that. You can ask me something else. How do I function in the world? I'm a, I'm a covenantal God who has a covenantal connection to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That you can tell the people. But don't ask me the philosophy stuff. Skip it. I'm not going there. That's another. But the Rabbim, of course, has the opposite idea. So here the Rambam says the following thing. As the Rambam reads this parasha. Rambam says, Moses asked God two questions. Apart from who's going with me. First question was, teach me your paths, your ways. How do you function in the world? Your attributes. And the second was, teach me your nature. So the Rambam says, when it comes to the nature, the essence of God, God didn't, didn't fully answer Moses. You can see my back and not my face, whatever that means. We can't fully grasp me. But when it comes to the first question, teach me your ways, there the Rambam thought that God did answer Moses. The answer to for the Rambam was Hashem Hashem Kerachum V'chanun which are known in our Western tradition, Jewish tradition as attributes of, uh, of, uh, of uh, action. Attributes of action. This is very basic if you ever take any Jewish philosophy. So this is very central. So the Rambam believed that's the way he reads the parasha. Now, is that the pshat? I don't think so personally, but it's actually quite ingenious. But that's what he's taking out of this whole... Moses wants to understand God. Now, I would say something else. That's enough for the Rambam. What I would say in the story, however, getting back to the Chumash now, I read differently. I read it differently. Here's how I think you should read the Chumash. Moshe initially has two, two questions of God. Number one, who's going to go with me? And number two... Teach me your ways. The word derechecha, derech is a path, is not an innocent term over here. Because remember what, how, the, how this chapter begins. God said to Moses, I was sending my angel. I'm not going to go with you. Lest I consume you on the derech. So now Moses turns to God and says, okay, that's nice. But who's going to go with me? And let me tell you something. If you want me to lead them, who's going to go with me? And furthermore, who's going to teach me the right path to go? Durachecha means the path of God. We have that expression earlier in Shemot. When Moses was sitting in judgment, and his father-in-law said to him, Moses, why are you sitting by yourself? Chapter 18. Moses says the people have a lot of questions. They want to seek out God. What you're doing is a bad thing. You can't do that. It's terrible. You can't do it yourself. You have to choose other judges. But you have to teach them. You, Moshe, should teach the other judges the path they should take and the, and the actions they should do. The Gemara already, in several places, elsewhere, what does it mean, the actions they should do and the path they should take? The Gemara says the two different things. The actions they should do are what we call the, 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 the law, the din. 
But the path they should take, that the Gemara called Mishuratadin, to go beyond the law. Which which means how do you how do you actually live in the in the living in the world, you can't just live in the world with, with a code book, because you don't that's not going to teach you how to live in the world. And sometimes you have to go beyond the code book. So that's the path you should take. Moshe is saying something else over here. Moshe is saying, You want me to lead them. You say, bring the people up and lead them. That's chapter 33, verse 1. Take them up to the land. Okay, I, I'm willing to do that, but I need guidance. So I want you to come with me to guide me and direct me on the right path. That's what he says. It's all one thing. And that's God's answer. My face will go... What's Vahani Choti Loch? I will guide you. Lech Nechei right? Padayi Lech Vahani Choti is the answer to both of Moshe's questions, not to one. I will go with you and I will guide you. I'll take you on the path. So then Moshe says, that's very good. If you don't come with us, there's no point. Because unless we... Unless you, we and if you do come with us, plural, me and the people, then they'll be so special. Then we will know. Moshe says to know that... The Rambam was very, no doubt, picks up on over here, the word that appears over and over again are various forms of the word to know. How will it be known, right? They're all playing on the word Yada. So how will, right? You, you said Yadatichah. You have known me by name. I want to know your paths. And then finally, if you go with us, how else, how else could it be known that I find favor in your eyes, me and the people, except if you go with us? Notice, if you really love me, says Moshe, you'll go with the people too. That's the point. You said you love me. But this is the demonstration. And not only that, there's a benefit to all of us in your going with us. This will distinguish us from the rest of the nations of the world. Now, we still haven't gotten to the other point, because God had said earlier... The reason I'm not going with you, God didn't say because I'm angry. That's not what God said. He said, I'm not going with you, lest I consume you on the way. That was a very pragmatic reason. If I go with you together, no doubt, okay, it'll be very nice for a couple of days, then three days later, they're going to make me angry, and I'll destroy you. So that's what God said. So Moshe hasn't addressed that, that issue yet. It's very nice to go, but but going, we're going to fight and I'm going to destroy you. So we haven't gotten to that yet. We'll get to that in a minute. In any event, or maybe God will figure it out. How is this going to happen? So now, in 17, God says to Moshe, I'll do this also. Now in 18, we have the verse, show me your kavod. So here, the question is, what does that mean? For the Rambam, it means, I want to fully understand you to the end. I want to know exactly who you are. And the answer is, you can see my back and not my face, you can't fully grasp me. But the question is, how did that factor in? I find that very difficult, actually, in terms of the shot of the Chumash. What's the relevance? Ram writes a philosophical word. But the Chumash, what's going on? Moshe wants to understand the nature of God to the end. I mean, what is that? So, Arenek Vodecha, I think, has a different meaning, actually. Kavod Hashem, in the Torah, in the book of Exodus, refers to God's presence. That's number one. Especially, God's presence as manifest in the uh, Mishkan. That's how the book ends, actually. Kvod Hashem. The last verses of Exodus. On page 200 and was it? 20, 205? 
It's five verses. The cloud filled the tent of meeting. Tent of meeting is the Mishkan. Uchavod Hashem Malayat HaMishkan, verse 34. Next verse. Moshe himself couldn't enter the Mishkan because the cloud was there. Uchavod Hashem Malayat HaMishkan. So the Kavod Hashem is God's glory. Moses himself couldn't even enter the Mishkan because the Kavod was there. Kavod means the presence of God. So when Moses says to God, Show me your kvodecha, okay? Harenu kvodecha. I assume what that means, among other things. I have to check this. I haven't seen. I think the Rashbam is something along these lines. Kavod Hashem is a way of God's God appearing, God's glory being manifest, is a way of demonstration that God is residing with Moshe. Right? You had it earlier. Moses puts his tent outside the camp. And the cloud comes down. Now Moshe has said to God, I want you to come with me and with us. God says, okay, I'll do that fine. You will do it. Demonstrate it by revealing yourself to your glory to me. And in revealing your glory to me, you're revealing in effect the glory to us. Because we just made the point that I'm going to be with them. So the way you appear to me is the way you're going to appear with us. So God, I want you now to appear to me before me and you will, and remember, the way you appear before me here today is the way you're going to appear before us. What does us mean? Us means the Mishkan. What Moshe is basically saying to God is, if you're going to come with us, it's going to be a Mishkan. I want you to demonstrate that now by, by appearing before me now in your, in, your, in, your, in your glory. And this raises the problem that we, one second, that we had earlier. But if God appears with the people, God will destroy the people. So Moshe is saying to, in effect, Moshe is putting it back to God. Moshe says, okay, we have now agreed that you're going to travel with us. You have agreed, because you like me so much. That's very nice. I want you to reveal your presence to me now, and in this way you will, will reveal your presence to the people later. But, but God said, I'm going to destroy them if I go, right? So, how, so God's answer here is going to be an answer to the problem. The answer is going to be this, and I'll take your question in one second. God says to Moshe the following. God said to Moses, I will reveal all of my goodness before you. I will cry out with the name of God, B'Shem Hashem, before you. I will chanoti et I will appear in the, in, the, in the guise of a God who has two main qualities. The first is Chanoti Chanun and the second is Rachum. In other words, and then God says, I can't appear in all of them because if I appear it fully, no one you can't see God fully and live. So I'm going to appear in such a way that you only see part of me. I'll put you in the rock, I'll cover you up Kapi. I will cover you up with my hand until I pass. You'll see my back and not my face. The point here for the Chumash is this. That what God is saying to Moshe is, I will appear to you. And in appearing to you, I'll appear to them. Kavod Hashem, which is the Mishkan. But let me tell you which God is going to appear in the Mishkan. Not all of God. There's a piece of God that can't be in the Mishkan. 
because that reason, because if God is in the Mishkan, God will destroy you. If I'm, I'm traveling with you, as I said earlier, but the solution to our problem is that the God who appears to Moses, the God of the Mishkan, is not God in God's totality. It's a part of God. Which part of God? It's Chanun Verachum. It's what we know as Yud Gimun Bidot. Hashem Hashem Kerachum Verachum. Those that list of attributes are the list of the attributes of a merciful God. That's the name of God. That's Shem Hashem that will appear Hamakom, the place that God chooses to place God's name. God's name means that not God's fullness. In other words, Shmi, the name of God does not mean necessarily that that's God in God's totality. That's a part. It's called Tuvia Panecha. It's all of my goodness. And I would add one more point to call Tuvia Panecha, which is this. That God then said to Moses, you can't see me and live. The human being can't see me and live, right? Is, is significant for the story because it means if I appear fully, no one's going to, as I said earlier, no one can survive. And then God says to Moshe, here's what we're going to do. In verse 21, Oh, there's a place with me, right? Place near me, they translate in the JPS. You will stand on the rock. As I pass by, I'll place you in the cleft of the rock. I will cover you. I will cover you up, right, with my hands until I pass. When I take my hands away, then you'll see my back. But you can't see my face. This is the bottom of 187. Notice all the pieces of God. There's God's face. There's God's hands, right? Uh, there's God's back, right? There are three different things. It's a very, it's a language that we don't usually have in the Chumash, describing God in very human terms. But what's interesting is the idea that what it allows you to see God is the hand that, that covers God. You can see a piece of God because God is hidden. God, and God hides God's presence from Moshe with the word Vesakoti. The word Vesakoti is to cover. It's very much related to a word we're all familiar with, which is the word Sukkah. Now what's interesting about the word Sukkah, it's written here with the sin, but it's the same word. What's interesting is that the word Sukkah appears in the Chumash, actually. I mean, it appears in the Chumash of Chagah Sukkot. But it appears in the Chumash in the book of Exodus very importantly it appears in the book of Exodus in conjunction with the Mishkan with the critical vessel of the Mishkan the critical vessel of the Mishkan is the Ark it's a critical vessel because God speaks from the, above the Ark that's called the place where God is the place that I meet you the Mishkan is called the Ol Moed the place of meeting the place where God meets us is from above the Ark I will meet you there. Where does God speak in the Mishkan? From where? God speaks in the Mishkan from between the two Kruvim which are on top of the Ark. The Kruvim are described in the Chumash as being on either side of the Ark. And they have wings that extend above the Ark. And they are Sochachim B'Kanfehem Al-Kaporet. The wings of the Kruvim are Sochachim. They are covering the Ark. To the degree that the Talmud actually 
has a whole discussion in Sukkah about how high are the wings. The Talmud has a whole discussion about this. The first chapter of Sukkah, the Talmud says the wings are ten hand, handrests, ten tfachim above the ark. And the Talmud says from this we can derive that the minimum size of a sukkah is ten handrests. They're seeing the space in between the kruvim and the kaporet as an open space, as a sacred space, which is a kind of sukkah. Now that is, there's something very deep going on over here, but my point is, this idea what Moshe is experiencing God over here, <coughs> God's presence, God's presence being the presence of a, of a, of a, of a forgiving God. Rachum chanotiyat asher and what makes it possible is the fact that that Moshe, that something hides Moses from from God. This so sakoti kapi, and later in the Mishkan, that's exactly what you have. The Mishkan is the place where God speaks. God speaks from above the ark, but you never allowed to enter. First of all, it's covered. It's covered with the kaporet and with the kruvim. But on top of that, you can never go into except one time a year. It's this week's Torah reading. That's Achrimot, right? Tell Aaron never to enter the Holy of Holies. Why not? He'll die. Why will he die? Because I appear there in a cloud. Because I'm there. Now I'm there in the hiddenness. But I'm there. So Aaron can never go there because it's as it says. You can't see me and live. It's this week's parasha. You only can go in under certain unusual circumstances with the two sacrifices, etc., and with the katorah that obscures, that's what's going on in the Chumash. My point is, in the pshat of the Chumash, what's going on in this conversation is not about a philosopher trying to understand God. That's not what the Chumash is about in any manner, shape, or form. That's what the Rambam is about. The Chumash is not about that at all. It is, is about Moshe wanting to understand God to the degree what Moshe says, if you want me to lead the people, I need, I, need, I need wisdom. That's what King Solomon said when God appeared to Solomon as a little boy. What do you want, Shlomo? Do you want money? What do you want? Tell me what you want. I want wisdom to guide your people. Oh, because you ask for the right thing, I'll give you wisdom. It's already pretty wise. I'll give you more wisdom. If you didn't ask for the other stuff, I'll give you that also. Small proviso, writer, provided that you obey me and you don't mess up. When God says, provided you don't mess up, you're usually pretty certain he's going to mess up. That's beside the point. Provided you don't mess up, because Shlomo goes off the path. But the point is, it's exactly what Moshe's two requests are one request. I want you to, to tell me who's going with me. I want to lead the people. It's all the same request. Because I have to lead the people, I need the guidance and the wisdom to lead the people. To understand your path. What is your path? How, I, how, how do you learn God's path? It's a very good question. You find a book to learn. There's no book will teach you. The book can help you, but the book can't teach you. Because the book never deals with anything important. The book deals with trivia. Shulchan Aruch. I mean, Shabbos is Shabbos, not trivia. But it doesn't deal with the real questions of life. The real important questions of life is no book. You have to intuit it somehow. Maybe the book helps you in some way. That's what Moshe says. Moshe says, I have one question, one request. Who's going with me? You love me. And I have to guide the people. God said, It's one answer. I will go with you and guide you, Moshe. I will be your guide. That's great that you're going with us. Now let's 
Now let's clinch the deal. Means let's clinch the deal. You know what it's similar to? Then I'll take your comment in a second. It's similar to what you have in chapter 24. Chapter 24, Moshe comes down from the mountain and he reads the people, the Sefer Abrit. Remember, he has this whole book of the covenant, Parshas Mishpat in chapter 24. Everybody says, Nasev and Nishma. And Moshe takes the blood and throws it on the people and on the Mizbeach, the blood of the covenant that God has made. Next verse. And the next day, whatever it is, Moses and Aaron and Nadav and Aviyu and 70 elders ascend the mountain and they saw the God of Israel. That's what it says. When they saw the God of Israel. Seeing the God of Israel in the middle of chapter 24 is clinching the covenant. We have a covenant. Let's seal the deal. We seal the deal through the revelation. That's what Moshe is saying over here. Harenot kvodecha means, okay, you agree to go with us. Now let's seal it by, by, by your appearing. And the way that God appears, it's very interesting, God is teaching, the way that I appear is the way I'm going to appear later, which is Hashem Hashem Kerbachim V'chanon. Let me hear one thing about this week's parsha, which is re- very much related to it. It's a point that Milgram makes in his massive comment that Milgram wrote about Jacob Milgram, the 2,000-page book on, 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 on Vayikra. It's interesting. So it's very good, many interesting things. He makes one point, not that we need Milgram for this, it's, I think it's obvious when you read the Chumash. The Torah discusses in this week's parsha the high priest who enters, once a year, enters the Holy of Holies and is bringing these special sacrifices. His own sacrifice, the people's sacrifice, the Torah, the scapegoat. What is the purpose of the service of the high priest on Yom Kippur? So when you read the Chumash, you will see, it's this week's parasha actually. This week we have two parashiyot. If you go to Israel, before Shabbos you have only one parasha. Because we're, we're behind them because they, they have passed up the Shabbos. So they're, they're ahead of us by one parasha. Anyway, anyway, so the point's like this. So, so, uh, If you read the Chumash, you'll see that the Torah says two different things about Yom Kippur. The first and most central part of the Yom Kippur service is that what the priest is doing on, in the service, when he take, goes into the Holy of Holies and he sprinkles the blood on the altar, then he sprinkles the blood, uh, not the altar, on the, on the ark, for the ark, on the curtain, on the incense altar. But that's about, actually, in the words of the Chumash, the Chilomi Kaperet HaKodesh the Kohen completes atoning for the Holy of Holies, Holiest Place, and he atones for the Holy Place, and he atones for the incense altar. In other words, the service of the priest on Yom Kippur primarily is to purify the temple. And secondarily, you have the scapegoat. Then he atones for the sins of the people. And the way, I think Milgram explains it very nicely. I mean, when, he, this is, when you read the Chumash, it's obvious. You just read the words of the Chumash. But the idea is the following. Milgram's point is this. The, 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 he hasn't put it in terms of what I'm talking but it's the same thing. The temple, what, what Moshe is saying to God, and what the parish is saying is something amazing. What, Mo, what, what it is, basically, is God had said to Moses, I can't go with the people. Why can't I go with them? Because we're going to fight. 
That's inevitable. And I'm going to get angry. That also seems rather inevitable in the Bible. God gets very angry. And when I get angry, I'm going to destroy you. I will consume you on the road. So therefore, better that I not go. So Moshe turns to God and says, but you do want to come with us. We know you want to come. You want to come with me. I'm with them. You've got to come with us. Re- reveal your presence to us. So God says to Moses, here's how I'm going to reveal my presence. Not in the fullness of God, because that can't work. I reveal my presence to you as a forgiving God, as a kind and merciful and gracious God, and all that. And that's the way I'm going to reveal, that's quote, that's kavod Hashem. So the, what turns out is, and Moshe will say this in a couple of verses, will say, not just that God can go with us, but that God actually has to go with us. In other words, what God said, Moshe says to Hashem is, very, very good. If you jump ahead for one second, it's a remarkable business over here. Skip ahead a bit. Next page, 188. After God reveals to Moses the 13 attributes, you give him me doubts, we have verse number 9. By Yomer, Moshe said to God, Again with the word chain, if I find grace. God walk amongst us now. Right? What God said God could not do wherever you go. And now we have for they are a stubborn people. And you will forgive our transgressions, our sins and take us at your possession. What is the meaning of What does the word ki mean? So you have your JPS translation says something very wise actually. I don't think it's right, but I think it's very it's not wrong either. How does JPS translate Kiam Kshayorefu? Even though it's correct. I must say it's correct, that's what they say. Because the JPS is bothered. What do you mean what do you mean Most God said earlier in chapter thirty three, Lo I'm not gonna go with you. Why not? Right. Because you're stiff-necked. So what does it mean to say, come with us, right? Because, because we're stiff-necked. So the JPS translates, not because we're stiff-necked, even though we're stiff-necked. But I would say the word key can mean that, despite the fact. Usually the word key means because. I, would think, I think the better interpretation is not despite the fact. The better translation is because... What Moshe is saying is this. It's true that you said in chapter 33, verse number 1, or whatever it was, it's true. That if you go in our midst, you'll destroy us because we're stiff-necked. That is if the old God goes. That's the God of chapter 33. But, I'm not, but, but you yourself have taught us, God. You, you've taught us something, right? You've taught us that the God who's going to go with us is not the God in God's fullness. You've taught us about the God who's Chalun Verachum. You've taught us that we can't see all of God and you're going to appear with called Tuvi Apanecha only the attributes of goodness, of kindness. So therefore, if that's, if that's how you're going to come with us, we need you. Because that's a forgiving God. So on the contrary, not only that you're able to come with us, please, Yehu, come with Kibbeinu. Kiyam Kshayorif. Because if you come this way, this is how you're going to forgive us. You'll forgive us through your forgiving presence which accompanies us. So the point then is the, the Mishkan becomes the vehicle for our, for our, for our forgiveness. 
But so Milgram says that's very good. The Mishkan becomes the vehicle. The Mishkan's a cleansing agent. Very nice. What happens when you have a cleansing agent, but the cleansing agent itself becomes dirty? Got to clean the. Right. That's 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 once a year Yom Kippur. The Yom Kippur is actually it's actually it's actually the Pshat it's Chumash. And how does the Mishkan get dirty? The Chumash says how. You can defile the Mishkan. You don't have to walk into the Mishkan to defile the Mishkan. That's what the Chumash says. When you sin outside the Mishkan, you defile the Mishkan. You defile the Mishkan. The Hasidim took it to a different place, which is also the Pshat. You defile the Mishkan inside yourself. That's another story. It's also true. But in the Chumash, you defile the Mishkan through your sins. So what's going to be? So therefore, once a year, the priest comes in, and the first thing the priest does is to atone for the Mishkan. So we have a Mishkan. So the Mishkan will atone for our sins, right? Now we don't have a Mishkan. The Talmud speaks about Yom Kippur atoning for the sin. Yom Kippur itself is a Mechaper without a Mishkan. But in the Chumash, it's the Mishkan's Mechaper. But the Mishkan has to be clean, has to be pure. So the priest's job is twofold. Number one, he atones for the Mishkan. And then secondarily, he atones for the sins of Israel. The, the main sacrifice that atones for the Mishkan is brought in the Holy of Holies. It's the scapegoat of the people, the goat of the people. And the other goat is outside as the scapegoat atones for the sins. And the two goats are brought together. They're chosen by means of a, uh, of a, uh, of a, of a lottery. Go wrong. Chosen by means of a lot. The two are deeply connected. That's the pshat and the chum. Actually, pshat. And that's what's going on over here. Hashem Hashem Kerachum V'chanun is the way that and I suggested many times that when the Chumash says the place that God has chosen to place God's name the name refers to Hashem Hashem Kerachum V'chanun that's God's name that's what you can know about God Hashem Hashem Kerachum V'chanun in this regard I would add another detail that I think is actually very interesting if you look at these attributes of attributes of God we know it's the Yud Gimel Midot You'd give me doubts. I mean, I'm, as I'm talking, I'm just thinking, I'm not going to get into this now, but I was just thinking about Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the day that you say you'd give me doubts, actually. We, we say that we have a Jewish people who have custom to say Srichot even before Yom Kippur. But fundamentally, the main Srichot are Yom Kippur. I was just, as I'm talking, I'm thinking about the whole idea of Srichot. One of the basic themes of Srichot, of course, is the destruction of the temple and the rebuilding of the temple. I was just thinking now about how this is all connected. It's very deep, it's deeply connected. But anyway, we'll leave that aside for a minute. The Yud Gimel Midot, first of all, we don't know how to count up. They call it the 13 attributes. The 13 Midot. The 13 Midot of mercy. We have two problems with the 13 Midot of mercy. Number one, we can't figure out how do you get 13. Let's just start with that. About six different opinions how you get to 13 over here. Okay, that's one. That would not be a bad shear to have, by the way. How do you get, what are the midot? How do, you, how do you count them? But the second question is, are they all attributes of mercy? Are they all attributes of mercy? So I don't want to, in terms of the second question, are they attributes of mercy? 
I want to focus in on one of the 13 attributes that is found in chapter 34, verse number 6. Yeah, verse 6 and 7 are presumably the attributes of mercy. Yud Yom Midot. I mean, yudyum, the word Yud Yom Midot doesn't mean mercy, but they're typically called Midot Rachamim, the attributes of mercy, and that's my explanation here. What I'm suggesting is that I will appear with my goodness, with chal- and the two key ones, one of the most imp- two important Midot in terms of the narrative, God said what the two most important Midot are. What did God say? I got a lot of attributes of mercy, but the two most important ones, Chanu and Rachum, because it says it, right? V'chanoti et asher achon, v'richanti et asher arachem, right? Which verse? Chapter 33, verse number, no, it can't be 6. No, no, Rachum v'chanon is 6, but there's, no, it's verse chapter 33, verse 19. 33, 19. That's before God revealed the Midot. God is already giving an introduction. I mean, I'm going to appear before you. By the way, let me just say a side point, which is self-evident, that if you understand these psukim, these psukim are constantly being referenced on the, in the high holiday service. Constantly. Even on Rosh Hashanah. Right? For example, on Rosh Hashanah we blow the shofar. After we blow the shofar, at least the Ashkenazim have a little prayer. Called Hayom Harat Olam. Hayom Harat Olam. Hayom Yaviva Mishvat Olamim. Right? Today is the creation, beginning of the world. All created beings, right, are judged. Mishvat. Then we add in that prayer. Im Kivanim Im Kavodim. We say to God, we want you to see us, God, either as your children or as your servants. In Kivanim, if we are your children, Rachamenu Karachem Avabanim. And have mercy like a father has mercy for his children. Yim Kavadim, but if you prefer to see us as your slaves, your servants, Eneinu Ruchat we look up, we're depending on you. Achetachanenu, until you have graciousness towards us. So im kavadim, im kavadim. So im kavadim. What do we ask God? Rachamenu, have rachum. Im kavadim. We look at you. Achet techanenu. What's techanenu? Chanun. Chanun v'rachum. Rachum was saying applies to some of you have a kind of instinctive love for, like a child. It's instinctive. Like the word rechem is a womb. Chanun is different. Chanun is grace. That's what Esther says to the king. That's what Moses says to God. You don't, you don't talk to your spouse. Chain is a, shouldn't. Chain is to, to talk to your master. Talk to God. Chain. The slave talks to the master with chain. Racham is different. Racham is children talking to a parent or something. Because there's an instinctive connection over there. In any event, I have one simple question. There's one of these attributes straight out which doesn't sound like an attribute of mercy at all. And that is, we spend a lot of time on these things, you know. Verse number six, God crossed over, Vayavarashel Panov, Vayikra, Hashem Hashem Kerachum Vachanun Erech Apayim Rav Chesed Vemet. The question is the word Emet. 
Emet. Emet is truth. When you think of truth, you don't think of mercy. So the question is, what is the meaning of Emet? Now, there are two possibilities. One is that Emet actually means truth. <laughs> and we call these the attributes of mercy because they are, for the most part, attributes of mercy. The preponderance attributes are attributes of mercy. That's one way to go. The same thing later on. God will visit the sins of the iniquity of the parents upon the children for three and four generations. That doesn't sound like mercy. That sounds like, it sounds like vindictiveness actually, but it sounds like minimally, it sounds like judgment, harsh judgment. That's one way to, but nonetheless, but the, but the kindness is to thousand generations. So the um, imbalance. God is more kind than, say, mate kwa there's more kindness than there is harshness and judgment, but there is judgment and harshness. That's one way to read it, emet. There is another way to read emet. I think they're both true in different texts of the Bible, but the other way to read emet, I want to make a simple point. I think the, in, locally speaking, the word emet does not mean truth over here, actually. The word emet usually does mean truth, but here I don't think it means truth. Because it's Rav Chesed ve'emet. Emet may be a qualifier of Chesed. I say maybe a qualifier of Chesed because the fact of the matter is, let's say, example, the book of Genesis, Breshit, where we have the word Emet, right? We have the word Emet. For example, when Abraham sends his servant, right? sends his servant to uh, find a wife for uh, Isaac. And the servant goes to the well, right? So the servant prays at the well. He wants God to... I mean, the woman that comes out the, with the water and says, I'll give you and I'll give the camels as well. She's the one that God has chosen with the chapter 24. Chapter 24. Right? And then what do you know? Let's see. One second. Right? So he says, he asked God to do chesed. Chapter 24, page 43. Please do chesed. Chesed appears in verse 12. Chesed appears in verse 14. And then Rebecca comes out. She's very kind. And the servant's amazed on page 44. Who are you? Yes, sir, whatever. Then the servant says, verse 27. Baruch Hashem, okay, Adoniah, blessed is the God of my father Abraham. Who has not abandoned God's chesed and emet from my master. What does emet mean? That's chesed and emet appears once. Where else do we have it? Jacob speaks to Joseph. Please, don't bury me in the land of Egypt. Bury me in the land of Canaan. Right? Biosita imodi. Chesed ve'emet. I want you to do for me chesed ve'emet. Don't bury me in the land of, uh, of uh, Egypt. You have it in the book of Ruth. Naomi, when Ruth comes back after Boaz gave her all the food, blessed is the God, right, who did not forget chesed ve'emet. What does emet mean over here? I think emet is actually a qualifier of chesed. That's the way they translated it in 20 years. How do they translate it? Translate the true kindness. Steadfast, steadfast faithfulness. 
steadfast, right? Stead, the, the translating chesed is faithfulness, which could be right. It's steadfast. Faith. There's, there's two kinds of emet. You see, there's two kinds of chesed. There's a chesed. Well, we have nowadays called chesed shel emet, actually. Chesed shel emet is a term for the chevra kadisha, those who deal, because you can't get anything back. It's a true kindness. A true kindness is nothing can be expected in, in, in return. So it's true, it's true kindness. Over here, I would say chesed, the emet, I believe, is a qualifier of the chesed. In each of the cases, let's say the case of Jacob, I want you to do a true kindness for me. That is, I, I would say a kindness that, that I can't repay you for, a kindness that I won't be able to know if you did it or not. I want you to bury me in the land of Canaan. Or I would say a kindness, the servant says at the well, blessed is the God who did not, right, who did not abandon God's, I would say God's constant kindness. Abraham's an old man back in the land of Canaan. I'm over here in the land of Aram. But God has not forgotten Abraham. And God does kindnesses to Abraham even, even not in Abraham's presence. Even when it re- relates not to Abraham's presence but to his future. In both of those cases, which are very similar, right? Um, they're about the future. Abraham choosing a wife for Isaac's about the future, right? Uh, Jacob's concern about being buried in Canaan is about the future. So there it's Chesed, Chastova Mito. Chesed and Emet appear together in several places. In fact, in Genesis, the word Emet only appears with, the, with, with, with Chesed. So I believe the same thing as Yudgil Mido. Pshat, the simple Pshat. Rav Chesed ve'emet does not mean God is a God of kindness and truth. It means God is a God of true kindness. The Emet is a qualifier, actually. The Midot are almost exclusively Midot of Rachamim, and I would say something else. That even, this is an aside, what I said about Emet, I think, is the Pshat. Now, having said that about Emet, I, I would also agree, accept the idea that later that it could also be read the other way and that in, at least in two other places in the Bible they're taking it meant to be truth. Jonah, for example, in the book of Jonah in the last chapter when he's very angry because the city of Nineveh has been spared he's upset like anything and God says to Jonah, what's your problem? And Jonah says to God, I knew you were going to do this. I knew you were going to send me and change, not, not destroy Nineveh, but I know the kind of God you are. You're a God, Rav Chesed, who relents of the evil. In the text that we have, it's, it's Rav Chesed Vemet. Jonah took out the word Emet, and he replaced it with, who repents of the evil. Now Jonah, it's a critique on his part. Jonah's name is Jonah ben Amitai. It's the son of truth. He sees in God's behavior something which is not Emet. So he critiques it. That's the place of you give me don't. In any event, that's a separate conversation. I would add one last point. That poked avon avot al-banim, that God is punishing up to the fourth generation, who visits the sins of the parents on the children and the great, on the grandchildren up to the fourth generation, we see that as vindictive God. A harsh decree. That is, that, that is the pshat, I think, here. But, I mean, but not the same as the chesed. Chesed, the punishment to four generations, the chesed to a thousand. Okay, fine. But the truth of the matter is, in the Chumash, visiting the sins on the children, 
in the Chumash is an ultimate kindness, actually. Why is it an ultimate kindness? First of all, who's the one who, who makes the argument? Appeals to God's kindness and says, please God, punish the children. <coughs> Moses. When does Moses do this? When God, when Moses revisits the Yudhiyum Bidot, revisits them in the story of the Maragam, spies, God says to Moses, I've had enough with these people. I'm going to destroy them all now. And Moses says to God, don't do that. Right? Don't destroy them like, like one person. Right? Rather, Moses says, give us time. And God says, okay, I will do this. In other words, the point is, the point of, don't, if you distribute the, the sins over two generations, okay, you distribute the punishment over two generations, what effectively you are doing is you're limiting the punishment of the first generation. That's what God says, right? I'm going to destroy them all. Don't do that. Don't do that. Okay, I won't do that. I'll let them wander for 40 years. It means the kids are also wandering, right? But the point is, in doing that, that's the alternative. It's a kind of distributive theory of punishment. You distribute it over the generations, so it's, we see that's harsher. But actually, Moshe reverses it and says, why don't you not destroy them now? I know you're very angry. Instead of punishing them completely now, distribute it over time. And distribute over time, it allows the people to move forward, actually. In a certain sense, it allows the children to eventually redeem their parents, because they do enter the land, so it makes the parents part of a process. But I would say, getting back to the Yigil Midot, I think what I said about Emet is the Pshat. But this is actually, I mean, this is probably, this is Moses' great question about Moshe. This is his great moment, actually. He's able to work out a way, to negotiate out a way to find an answer. Or he, I would say, he allows God to find the answer. God actually finds the answer. That's the, the best negotiator. Is not the one who negotiates. The best negotiator allows the parties to find the answer. It's the best teacher also. It gives you, how do you, it gives you the tools to find your own answers. That's what it's really about. So, and God finds the answer. God says, I can't go with them, I'll destroy them. Let's, let's, let's think about that. Is there a way that you can go with them and not destroy them? I guess there is a one way I can not go with them fully. I can go with one quality, with the quality of mercy. It's called to I'm glad you thought of that, God. That's a great idea. And that's the way, and, and then our, our job is to make sure that this Mishkan is always capable of being part of the solution and not part of the problem. That's what these Kiyam Kshayoritful. Because the Ram Kshayorek, not despite, but because, that we need you because it's Ram, because exactly what you said earlier, you're so right. And therefore your forgiving presence is required. And I'm glad you thought of the way to do it, which is to appear partially with us, with the Sukkah, the Sakoti Kapi. Okay, we'll stop here.